Well, today I have the honor of introducing our guest speaker, Nick Parsons. So many of you may recognize Nick. He has been a longtime friend of Current and has spoken here several other times. It's always great. I can't wait to hear his message today. Um, but for those of you who don't know Nick, uh, he is the managing director and co-founder of Stratum Foundation, where he and Cindy work closely to coach and activate church planners in the Bay Area. So very near and dear to Current's heart. Uh, David met him really early on in his own church planning journey and has always been grateful for his ministry, his partnership, and his friendship. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Nick. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. We get situated here. It really is good to be back. Uh, I think this is my third or fourth time uh, here. So, so thank you for having me. Uh, thanks to David and Cindy who aren't here, but thanks for having me again. Uh, I'm especially excited to be back here this summer. So I'm speaking today, but I'm also going to be back here for four consecutive weeks in July. Yep, so happy to be back here in July for four consecutive weeks, starting in mid-July. And it's going to be really cool. We're going to be looking at the book of Psalms and exploring some really practical ways that we can start praying. So even if you're not a Christian, if you're new to faith, or if you feel stuck in your faith and you're like, man, where do I start? Uh, we're going to be looking at a series through the book of Psalms called Start Here, where we talk about prayer. So I'm excited to be back here for four weeks, but also really glad to be here today. Um, so again, that's a little bit of a preview. Uh, for the summer, I hope you can make it. I hope you can bring a friend. If you're out of town, I hope you can follow online. Uh, but today, uh, I want to continue and bring to a close the series that you guys have been in on uh, called Lead. And I'm so excited to do that. So thank you again for having me. Uh, Silicon Valley is probably one of the only places I can really say this and not at all feel self-conscious or like I'm bragging. Uh, but I have a master's degree in organizational leadership. No? Uh, it's not from a super prestigious school, I'm just going to be honest. Uh, it's not from Harvard, it's not from Stanford, it's not from Yale, it's not even from a UC. Uh, that's a joke. Um, I actually got this degree from a small Christian university, and the particular program that I was a part of was always trying to work out this balance of um, learning about leadership and taking uh, practices and ideas and resources and models from the business and the secular nonprofit world, and at the same time trying to learn and faithfully integrate those things with the Christian scriptures, with the Bible, with the Christian tradition. And so it's always a bit of a dance happening with this program, where we'd engage a concept from a business book or from a thinker in the secular world, and then we'd be asking, how does this framework, how does this idea fit with the teaching of the Bible, the ethics of Christianity, the way that Jesus modeled leadership, right? And we did this the other way as well, right? How does this thing that Jesus talked about integrate or, or work out in our modern world? And so it was a bit of a back and forth, a balancing act, uh, trying to integrate these two worlds. And if I'm honest, it wasn't always easy. Uh, a very quick example, if you study leadership in a formal educational context, and specifically leading change in an organization, you're probably going to come across the work of John Cotter. Is anybody familiar with John Cotter? Anybody? John Cotter? Okay, good. One. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Cotter is a professor of leadership, emeritus at Harvard. Uh, he was given tenure there at 33. I think that's one of the youngest in Harvard's history. Uh, he's the most reprinted author in HBR, the Harvard Business Review's history. And he's kind of the seminal author or thinker as it, re as it relates to uh, leading organizational change. Uh, and his work is really exceptional. It's really helpful. He has a book called Leading Change that's one of the most helpful organizational leadership books I've ever read. 
I, I really mean that I go back to it frequently, I recommend it often, uh, but for a person studying leadership from a Christian perspective and wanting to integrate it with my faith, it presents some challenges. And so Cotter's has some recommended strategies for dealing with resistance to change, for instance. And they don't always sync up nicely with Christian ethics. So there's a chart here that should come up. Uh, this is John Cotter's uh, six ways of dealing with resistance to change. So if you look at that very far left, your left, my right, educate these approaches to dealing with resistance to change, you'll see a few. There's education and communication. There's participation and involvement. And there's sort of how you could use them, what the advantages, what the drawbacks are. And it's kind of presented in a neutral way, these six strategies. There's facilitation and support. There's negotiation and agreement. And then we get down to the fifth and sixth. There's manipulation and co-optation. There's explicit and implicit coercion. And Cotter in his book, he doesn't really say these are wrong. He's just like, there's an upside and a downside to these, to using these. And so you can imagine it becomes hard and hard to sometimes mesh these ideas with the Christian faith. Like when Jesus said in his most famous speech, the Sermon on the Mount, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Or when Paul, a major teacher in the early church, wrote to new Christians about how their lives, their ethics, their attitudes, and their behavior needed to change as a result of their new faith in Jesus, he wrote this. This is Ephesians 4, 20 through 25. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And so how can we put off falsehood and speak truthfully to our neighbors, to our coworkers, and also employ Cotter's fifth and sixth strategies for overcoming resistance to change, manipulation, coercion? Is that even possible? Can you understand the tension here? Uh, let me state the obvious. Following Jesus and being a leader is complicated. Following Jesus and being a leader is complicated. And that complexity flows both ways. There are practices, strategies, and attitudes that are normal in secular leadership that don't fit nicely with Christian ethics and the model of Jesus. And there are things that Jesus said, right, that are really complicated and they're difficult to translate into our contemporary work culture. Uh, if you were to keep reading the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the section uh, that, I, that I read from what Jesus said earlier, if you were to just keep reading, immediately he says this after what I read. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. How does that work in the workplace? Or in your school? Or with your family? Or in our legal system? I mean, I'm pretty sure like HR departments exist to make sure the opposite of what Jesus says is what is the norm in our workplaces, right? Following Jesus and being a leader is complicated. It's not an easy task. It requires translation and wisdom, humility, but also courage, winsomeness, but a willingness at times to be different than the social norms. And so this morning, I just want to offer to you kind of a major takeaway that I gained from my study of leadership from a Christian vantage point. Uh, 
Uh, not because it's an exhaustive definition of Christian leadership, but because I think it can provide a bit of a helpful framework for thinking through some of the complications of following Jesus and being a leader in our modern world. And I'm also just really glad that I'm sharing this message at the end of a really great series that a lot of people covered really wonderful ground throughout this series. It makes it much more easy for me to come and share, not feeling like I have to do a, a summation of everything, but just to kind of give you one slice of what it might mean to look like a Christian, to be a Christian and a leader in our modern world. Uh, so I'm hopeful for each of us in whatever areas of life we experience the challenge of leadership or the tension between following Jesus and living in this modern world. Uh, even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that today's message might give you a window into what it might look like to navigate the complexity of following Jesus and being a leader in whatever unique situation you're in. So here's my major points today. Number one, uniquely Christian leadership is characterized by a leader who not only serves others before themselves, but serves God above all. Second point, this vision of Christian leadership is exemplified for us by Jesus, and he demonstrates this uniquely Christian model of leadership on our behalf. Now, I want to root these ideas first in Jesus' own teaching. Seems like a good place to start, right? Uh, Jesus was once asked by a religious leader to choose the most important part of the Jewish law. Jesus was Jewish. He would have grown up as a student of the many, many laws uh, that govern Jewish life and society and religion. And Jesus' answer here to this question is his way of sort of summarizing the entirety of the Old Testament laws. Jesus is boiling down everything about that to its essence, to the very heart of the law. And so it's a really important passage, a great exchange and a great starting point for a framework on Christian leadership. Let me read it. It's Matthew 22, verse 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, it's always lawyers, right, uh, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Notice what Jesus does here. He presents two commands, two laws, that should govern how his followers are to engage the world. Two commands that summarize the whole of the Old Testament's ethical teaching. And Jesus also presents an order, a priority, a first and a second. He's only asked to give one, but he, he doesn't. He gives two because they're connected. They're interdependent. The second flows from the first, and the first is connected to the second. There's a priority, right? One comes first, and we'll get to that one in a minute. But let's start with that second command, love your neighbor as yourself. In the same way that you care for yourself, at least that much, maybe even more, Jesus teaches that his followers should love the people around them. They should concern, uh, they're concerned with, they should concern themselves as much with their neighbor's needs as with their own. And when you apply this to leadership, it's a challenging situation in many ways, right? Uh, the kind of leadership that Jesus is teaching here, uh, the kind of leadership that Jesus is teaching would result in in some ways, it's really countercultural. It goes against the grain of leading for one's own selfish ends. Uh, it means that followers of Jesus are to lead in a way that puts others' needs first. A kind of servant leadership is being encouraged here. Uh, and that's really important. But I also want to say it's not uniquely Christian, right? There are other people out in the world that exist as leaders who put their followers' needs ahead of their own. Many non-Christians rightly hold to a similar ethical framework and vision for leadership. Leadership that puts service to others above selfish ambition, that puts the needs of their followers above their own needs. 
this is somewhat common, right? It's kind of an ideal way of imagining a leader's role and relationship with those they lead. And it's important uh, because this kind of servant leadership, right, it's aligned with Jesus' articulation of that second greatest command in the Bible. But again, it's not necessarily uniquely Christian. And in my opinion, it's a bit of an incomplete vision of Christian leadership. Uh, If you study leadership formally, even in a secular context at a normal university, you'll likely encounter the work of Robert Greenleaf. Uh, He's generally considered to be the father of servant leadership. I'm using that word sort of in a formal sense here. Uh, Greenleaf was born in the early 1900s. He was an executive at AT AT&T, and he eventually went on to write and present a vision of leadership called servant leadership in the 70s, and he kind of popularized this idea until he died in 1990. Anyone familiar with that idea of servant leadership? Maybe you've heard it in a popular way. Has anyone studied Robert Greenleaf or familiar with Robert Greenleaf? Anybody? Cool. Not even one this time. (laughs) All right. Well, Google Robert Greenleaf. No. Um, It's a helpful framework, and it really is a massive improvement over a vision of leadership that was solely concerned with the self, like the benefit of a leader, the selfish benefit of a leader. You can imagine Robert Greenleaf kind of comes into the madman world of leadership. You can imagine the movie, the show Mad Men, and it's sort of all about making money, self-aggrandizement, and he's saying, no, it should be about something more than that. It should be about not just benefiting ourselves, but about the people who are under us, the people we, we lead, that we serve them, that they flourish. And it's a helpful correction to some of the world's ways of leader, the worst ways of leadership that we see. Uh, Greenleaf, he was heavily influenced both by his Christian faith as a Quaker, but also by his reading and interest in Eastern mysticism, in Buddhist philosophy, uh, and his conception of servant leadership really reflects all of those influences. I want to present a little bit of an overview of servant leadership put together by, put together by Larry Spears, who is the president of the, was the president of the Robert Greenleaf Center for Servant Leadership. Uh, that should come up now. Again, it's a very helpful framework. I'm not trying to throw this under the bus, uh, but I think it's an incomplete vision missing one key element. So you have awareness, listening, empathy, foresight, conceptualization, persuasion, community building, stewardship, healing, commitment to the growth of people. These are the marks of a servant leader, according to Robert Greenleaf. It's a helpful and, again, necessary correction over and against leadership that's based entirely on selfish ambition. But, and this is important, I think, if we are seeking a uniquely Christian vision of leadership, one that fully aligns with Jesus' summation of the Old Testament's ethical teaching, Greenleaf's conception of servant leadership is missing something. It's missing that orientation towards God. It's missing that first commandment that Jesus mentioned, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's missing that prioritization of serving or loving God above all things, even above serving others. Servant leadership, and I'm using that term formally, is a helpful framework insofar as it moves the focus of leadership off oneself. But it's an incomplete vision of Christian leadership because it only focuses leadership on the leader's relationship with their followers. It misses the focus and priority of a leader's relationship with God, which Jesus seems to say is really, really critical. Why does that matter? Why is it important that Christian leadership is characterized by a leader who not only serves others before themselves, but also serves God above all? This morning, I want to spend just a little bit of time in the book of Exodus, chapter 32, Uh, If you have a Bible or a Bible app, uh, you can jump over there and camp out if you want. Uh, If not, no problem. The text will come up on the screen. But we're going to be in there for a few minutes. Uh, To orient everybody to the story, Exodus 32, it takes place um, between the time when God had brought his people, the Israelites, 
uh, out of hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt and is in the process of sort of establishing them as a new nation. Uh, if you remember the cartoon movie, The Prince of Egypt, some of you guys have definitely heard that, right? I mean, someone's seen The Prince of Egypt, right? More than one. Okay, great. We've seen The Prince of Egypt. Good. Uh, when God calls Moses to, you know, to lead these people out of Egypt with the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, all that, the story we're going to read takes place kind of immediately after that, okay? God, he calls Moses up on a mountain, Mount Sinai, and Moses is going to end up staying there for 40 days and for 40 nights. He's going to be receiving instruction from God about the law, and he's going to receive a written version of the Ten Commandments on these two tablets. If you've ever seen any of the old movies, uh, like uh, they were, they're carrying the two tablets, that kind of thing. That's what, that's what Moses is in the process of doing. Uh, these commandments are something that Moses has actually already shared with the people. The people have already agreed to abide by these. They're sort of like the foundational documents of this new nation. And everyone's already said, yeah, we're on board with this. And while Moses is gone for 40 days, he puts his brother Aaron in charge of the people. So Moses is leaving. He says, Aaron, you're in charge. But as you can imagine, 40 days is a long time. And the people that Aaron is keeping an eye on are getting restless. Uh, pay attention here, and you're going to see contrasting visions of leadership between Aaron and Moses. Let me begin in verse 1. This is Exodus 32, verses 1 through 5. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him, and he made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioned it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who, got, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And so the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, here's the problem here. Remember those Ten Commandments that I mentioned? Well, the very first one of those commandments was that the people would have no other God besides the God who brought the people out of Egypt. Let me read the opening words of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the fourth and third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So we have a bit of a problem here with the people, with Aaron, with the commandments, this thing they've agreed to. Now let me pull up that servant leadership slide again. Remember those characteristics that came up. Aaron practices a kind of servant leadership here. Aaron is aware of the people's problem. He listens to their frustrations. He has empathy for their predicament. He has the foresight to know that if, he can set, if, you, if, if the people's issues aren't addressed, their restlessness might metastasize into something worse. So he conceptualizes a solution. He persuades the people to work together, doing a little community building gold collection. It's good stewardship, right? Everyone's sharing the cost burden to, uh, according to their means. Uh, he makes a golden calf, and afterwards, nearly everyone joins in a healing time of meals and drink and revelry. 
Maybe he starts to realize things are going off the rails here. But clearly, Aaron is justified in his actions, right? He's just trying to help the people he's committed to their growth. He's addressing their felt needs. Do you see the problem, though? Do you see what's missing in Aaron's leadership? It's that Godward orientation. It's that missing prioritization of loving God above all else that provides a bit of a counterbalance to the needs of the masses. Aaron is missing this meta-ethical framework. He doesn't love God or even fear God more than he loves and fears the people. And this is the missing piece of many conceptions of servant leadership. Uh, there's this really helpful book. Really, really, I mean, honestly, if there's like one takeaway, buy this book. Uh, it's called When People Are Big and God is Small by Edward Welch. And it's not at all a leadership book, per se, but it's really just a really good exploration of this topic and what happens in all of our lives when we love and fear people more than we love and fear God. And I think that's kind of the dynamic that's at play with Aaron. His loves are disordered. His priorities are mixed up. He loves the people, but in the absence of the superseding love for God, Aaron's love for them becomes untethered and distorted. His love for the people becomes an unhealthy fear, and that fear of the people motivates Aaron to abdicate true leadership. A uniquely Christian vision of leadership maintains both a focus and priority on loving God above all and a focus and priority on loving people. Fully Christian leadership requires both of these two things together. It's not an either-or, and it's, absolute, it's an absolutely necessary both-and. Missing either of these dynamics can lead to disastrous leadership. And we see this dynamic actually paired together really wonderfully in the response of Moses. Uh, listen for both his love for God and his love for people as I continue reading Exodus 32. This is Exodus 32, verses 7 through 14. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and they have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who, you, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them that I may destroy them, and then I will make you into a great nation. Hear this, though. But Moses sought the favor of his Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against the people? who you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever." And then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Something pretty fascinating is happening here in this text. I, I see this as almost a God kind of testing Moses a bit. Uh, God is expressing to Moses frustration with the Israelites, and he proposes that he could just like wipe them out and start fresh with Moses alone. Like hit the reset button, start a new nation with Moses from scratch. Again, I just want to be really clear. I don't think that's actually what God desires. I think he's kind of testing Moses. And we, the readers, are beneficiaries of seeing Moses' response. I think there's a bigger story at play here that God is doing, and he's wanting to test Moses to get us there. A more complete example of Christian leadership, even. So Moses, he denies God's offer to make him and his descendants into a great nation. I see that in verse 10. Uh, the spotlight of leadership isn't on him. It's not about himself. 
He's not in this for his own benefit. Moses, he also seeks the favor of the Lord, his God, verse 11. He has his priorities right. He's serving God above all. But Moses also demonstrates a profound love for the people. He goes to bat for them and begs God on their behalf to spare them for God's own sake. Do you see the leadership focus of Moses' love for God and his love for people? He is loving God and the people at the same time. This is a vision and model of uniquely Christian leadership. If you were to continue to read the chapter, we'd read about Moses going down to the people, confronting them for their disobedience, confronting Aaron for his abdication of true leadership. Uh, In verse 21, Moses says to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Aaron, though, he continues to blame the people. They remain big. God remains small in Aaron's mind. The people are actually so out of control that the text says they become a laughingstock to their enemies. And things continue to degenerate into such chaos that Moses, who we just read, uh, that he loves the people more than himself, is forced to stand before the entire camp to call out to everyone, if anyone here is still with me and with the God, the real God who brought you up out of Egypt, come and join me. And so some of the people, the Levites, they join Moses, and they're forced to establish order when there's chaos by attacking their own people. It's a terrible moment. Something that Moses doesn't want to do, he's just defended the people before God. But it's interesting, Moses' love for God takes priority over his love for the people. He does what is difficult for God's sake, and ultimately for theirs. And so order is restored, and the next day, let me pick up in verse 30. It gets even more interesting. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. Moses, again, models selfless leadership, selfless leadership, leadership that puts God first, but still demonstrates a sacrificial heart for the people that he leads. Moses is willing to confront the people for their ethical failure failure to live up to the covenant that they agreed to. But he's also willing to try to make atonement for their sin. That's an interesting word, atonement. It basically means to cover over something. Uh, it's first used in the Bible when Noah is building an ark, and he is waterproof, he's building with wood, and he's waterproofing the ark. He's covering the cracks and the spaces in the wood with tar or with pitch. He's making what is broken whole, what is cracked seamless. He's covering the gaps. And in this story, Moses is offering, if he could, to cover, to atone for their sin, to cover the gaps in their relationship with God at his own expense. Moses prays to God that God would forgive the people's sin or blot him out from the book God has written. And this is a really interesting reference to the biblical book of life where the names of all of the people whom God is saving for eternity are written. It shows up again in the book of Revelation. Uh, Moses is just basically saying, God, put their names in that book, and if needed, take my name out. That is uniquely Christian leadership. When you see that example, does it remind you of anyone? We'll get there. Hang on for a second. Let me bring back up my first point for this message. Uniquely Christian leadership is characterized by a leader who not only serves others before themselves, but serves God above all. 
How can we apply this to our lives? Uh, I think the way that this works out in each of our lives is going to have to be unique. It's going to depend on the roles that we have, the vocational callings we have. It's going to require wisdom and lots and lots of love. Do we love our neighbors, our coworkers, our direct reports, our students more than we love ourselves? Are we willing to sacrifice ourselves for their benefit? And do we love God above all? Do we have our priorities in the right order? Are we willing to look foolish in the eyes of others when God calls us to? Will we listen to him over the mob? Will we rest when he calls us to rest? Will we obey his commands when we are pressured by the world to do something different? Are we willing to make ourselves smaller, people bigger than us, but God biggest of all? I can't presume to speak to the complexity and the unique ways this vision of leadership uh, will play out in each of your lives, but I can point you towards an example to follow. Let's bring up my second point, point two. This unique, uh, this vision of leadership is exemplified for us by Jesus, and he demonstrates this uniquely Christian model of leadership on our behalf. When in doubt, look to Jesus. Study his character and example. Sometimes Jesus clears the temple out. Sometimes he confronts the people in power. More often, he serves the lowly. He seeks the outcast. He cares for the poor, and he brings healing to the sick. He escapes the crowds to spend time with God. Let us lead like he did. Let us follow his unique model of leadership. And nowhere is that unique model of leadership seen more clearly than when Jesus voluntarily offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement for our sin. He did for us what Moses wanted to do for the people of Israel. Moses, he offered to do this for the Israelites for their sin. He asked God to take his name out of the book of life, to put the people's name in, but God didn't agree to do that. I remember God's response to Moses. This is Exodus 22, verses 33 and 34. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. Well, if you continue to read the Old Testament, there were some temporary punishments for the Israelites' sin. There were consequences for their actions. But ultimately, God waited. He held back because he was preparing his own sacrifice, his own method of atonement, someone else who would bear the ultimate punishment for the Israelites' sin. Moses offered to do this, but Jesus actually did it. Moses couldn't do it. He was willing, but he wasn't able no, someone greater than Moses, a perfect, sinless man, God's own son, was the only sacrifice acceptable. Not only for those Israelites, but also for us too, for our sin. Because we too have worshipped false gods and have gone astray in our own ways. We too deserve a punishment for our own sin. We too have a leader who was willing to sacrifice himself, to take the punishment we deserve, to give us eternal life, to die on our behalf. But again, what Moses offered, Jesus accomplished, and now he offers this to all of us again. Let me read to us from the book, New Testament book of Romans, describing this exact reality, and the band's going to join me. There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, that's us non-Israelites. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus is the one who covers and atones for sin. 
Now, I know it's complicated. I wish I had more time to explain it, but God, the creator of the world, has made a way for all of us to be justified, to be made right, to fill our gaps, to cover, to atone for our sin, to reconcile us back to him and to reconcile us to one another. And that happened through the death of Jesus on our behalf. That is what Jesus offers each of us today. In the greatest moment of true leadership the world has ever seen, his life for ours, fulfilling God's requirements at his expense for our sake. And let those of us who want to lead others as Christians lead from that sacred place, from that amazing example and model, leading by the example of the cross, loving God with our hearts and with our souls and with our minds and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Let's pray. God, I pray as we wrestle with what it looks like to follow Jesus in a modern world, or as we explore and imagine what that might look like for us. God, I pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus. When we have questions, practical questions about complicated situations we find ourselves in, Lord, would you fix our eyes on Jesus? When we wonder how it's gonna work out, when we wonder if we obey what it will mean for us, Lord, will you fix our eyes on Jesus? God, I pray that we would see a vision of him as our leader and that we would lead like he did. In Jesus' name.